Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, what a beautiful day. Another fall day. I love fall. It's my favorite. Actually, spring and fall tend to be my favorite seasons, and uh, it's a beautiful day out there. So welcome, uh, all those that are here and those that are with us by live stream. Uh, I want to encourage those that ha are new to our church, and if you've never uh, let us know about your attendance, outside the door to the right of the sanctuary, there is a welcome center. After the uh, service, please go out there. They have a gift for you if you are new. Also there, if you have not signed up for for our weekly newsletter. What I'd like you to do for me is to sign up. Uh, a weekly newsletter goes out every week. That's why they call it weekly. <laughs> but um, boom. Uh, that weekly newsletter goes out and it gives you a lot of great information about uh, things that are going on here at the church. It gives you prayer requests as well. Uh, so I would encourage you to be uh, part of that. So just go out there and sign up after the service is over. Uh, if you want more information about our church, please go to our website. The website has a lot of information about the church and the happenings that are there. You're also able to get um, prior uh, recordings of the services as well. I know a number of you want to go back and listen. Uh, so please feel free to do that. It's called, it's thechapelnj.org. ORG. And then, of course, those that, that are here, you get your sheets, and that will give you additional information. I would encourage you to do that. I just got a couple of announcements I want to highlight. Uh, Grief Share, I believe it is on November the 7th. Uh, Grief Share is going to be doing their Surviving the Holidays, uh, which is always an important uh, event, so I would encourage you to be part of that and seeing that. Yes, Tuesday, November 7th at 6.30 um, p.m. Um, also, Operation Christmas Child is in full um, bloom, and uh, Rita, we continue to pray for her healing and restoration as she heads up that ministry as well, as you are able to provide for those young people that are in need. The Operation Christmas Child boxes are out there, so please sign up. I think the deadline for that is November 19th, I think it is. Uh, November 18th, Lord willing, I'm going to be doing a workshop here on change and how you go through that change process. It'll be Saturday morning. You'll get more information about that. We call it Time for Change, and uh, we'd love to have you there. Other than that, I think that's it. Uh, please be aware of some of the prayer requests. I'll go through some of those this morning. And let me just read a couple of passages, and then we'll go to prayer this morning. Uh, from the Old Testament in Psalms, it says this in Psalm 5, verses 7 through 8. Uh, Psalm 5, verses 7 through 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, like we're doing this morning. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. That means in reverence of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. We have a lot of enemies that are out there thinking of the nation of Israel and those that are attacking her, and then also the attacks that we are going through, there are heavy. But when we come to this worship service, we want to reverence him. And then in the New Testament reading, found in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through the end, it says this, 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We can come confidently to God's throne because of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray through him today. Lord, I thank you. And Father, we praise you for the awesome privilege that we have to be here today. It is an overwhelming privilege to know you. It's an overwhelming privilege to be in relationship with you. It's amazing that you count us righteous in your sight. It's amazing that you've adopted us into your family. It's amazing that you give us the awesome privilege to be your representatives in this world. So Lord, I pray today, as we come together as a family to worship you, help us to worship you well in song. Help us to worship you well through prayer. Help us to worship you well through the preach word and help us to hear from you today and help us to respond um, by your grace and for your glory. Lord, we continue to pray for Diana Kelly and, and Linda Matthews who are battling their own struggles right now, Lord. I pray for them. I pray that you would be wrapping your arms around them, Father, through the physical battles that they go through, but also I'm sure the ups and downs emotionally that can be there as well. I pray that you'd be a huge encouragement to them and a blessing. Pray for Dave, Father Dean, as he is recovering from his surgery, Lord, and Rob as well as he struggling with that infection after his surgery, Lord, I pray that you would bring healing and restoration. Pray for the Moynihan uh, triplets, Lord. I, uh, they are going to have a battle for most of their lives, Lord, I, as they struggle with the cystic fibrosis. But I, I thank you that they've been gaining weight. I thank you that um, there are opportunities that are coming into their lives and the blessings for their families. So, Lord, I pray that you continue to bless them. And Father, I pray for Sarah that as she's on the mission field, a number of our missionaries that are in harm's way in difficult situations, Lord, I pray that you be comforting her, using her in amazing ways. Pray for Samaritan's Purse and the work that they do, Father, around in the Ukraine, but also around the world as well. And the Father, just uh, earlier I was hearing from uh, Pastor Bates, who is... Um, has skin cancer and is uh, on some specific treatments for that. Father, is, I think he's battled skin cancer uh, many times in his life, so I pray for wisdom for his doctors and his healing as well. I pray for our service. Help us to be filled by your spirit. Help us to glorify your name. Help us to reflect you in all that we do. In Jesus' matchless, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen. Stop the Lord Almighty. Our 
God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles, and every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. So open up the gates, make way before the King of Kings. The God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. For the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. stop the Lord Almighty? Who can 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 stop the Lord? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. In life and death, Christ alone, Christ alone, what is our only confidence? 
that our souls to him belong who holds our days within his hand what comes apart from his command and what will keep us to the end the love of christ in which we stand oh sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal oh sing hallelujah now and ever we confess christ our hope in life and death good god is good where is his grace and goodness known in our great redeemer's blood who holds our faith when fears arise who stands above the stormy trial who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore the rock of christ sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal oh sing hallelujah now and ever we confess christ our hope in life and death unto the grave what will we sing Christ he lives, Christ he lives, and what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him, there we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to sing this next song, we pray that you'll help us to reflect on the words. We pray that you will help us to envision ourselves standing at the foot of the cross, looking into your beautiful face, and knowing the sacrifice you gave to forgive us from our sins. We thank you, Lord.
to see the dawn of the darkest day. Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, for the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the
forgiven at the cross. Oh, dear Lord, we just thank you for the day that you've given us and for the family we have here with us right now, dear Lord. Pray that you be with um, all those around the world that are praising your name today because of the power of the cross, the sin you bore for us. I just pray, dear Lord, that you'd be with those in other countries that are further along in terms of persecution of Christians, those that just brave it every day. We still can come here, and we can come here willingly. We can come here knowing that today, today in this country, we have the privilege. I just pray, dear Lord, that when it gets tough, and it will get tough, you promised us it will get tough, that we come in courage. And we dream of that day when you'll be coming from the crowds. And those clouds, dear Lord, will break apart and we'll just, we'll know it's you. We won't be fooled by anybody sitting on a throne somewhere. We'll see it. You've promised us and that's what we dwell on. It's your promises. Thank you so much. Thank you for the worship time that we have together that we can raise up your name in song and praise you who are worthy of all things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning, I'm going to read from Genesis 2, and we're going to take verse 15 to the end. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of everything in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and so every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you. All right, good morning, everyone. Great to uh, have you with us today, and I'd like you to, if you haven't turned there yet, turn to uh, Book of Genesis chapter 2. 
The, the topic of our discussion this morning is marriage and the gospel. Uh, I was thinking last week was, uh, I think, October 15th. Am I right on that, Christina? Is today the 22nd? It is? Okay, so last week marks us being in this building for six years. Isn't that crazy? My body hurts when I think back <laughs> about the process and all the effort and even a little PTSD, a little stress. Uh, but we're grateful and thankful to God for, uh, for his provision and uh, for the progress that he has uh, granted to us uh, by his grace because it certainly has nothing to do with us. So the topic of Genesis 2 is the topic of marriage. <clears throat> uh, I want to make the note for you that verse 18 and following of Genesis 2 is really an expansion. Oh, children can be dismissed for junior church. Since it's on marriage, I should be noticing that my wife is back there doing calisthenics. <laughs> Only I could miss that, I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, so verses, verse 128 is the text that talks about God creating man in his own image and image of God. He created him male and female. He created them, all right? So that's the snapshot in chapter one, one verse. When you get into chapter two, you get into the kind of expanded version of the account of the creation of man and the creation of woman, okay? So here, primarily focus on the creation of the woman as meeting a need that Adam acutely felt. So the text notes in verse five that there is deficiency, there was no man to till the earth. God, God creates man to fulfill that need. And then in verse 18, it says, the Lord God said it was not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. Okay, and so that's, there's a deficiency the, and then a meeting of that deficiency or a meeting of that need on the part of God. So, so the overall text is about the topic of marriage foundational truths about this crucial building block of culture. And there's no way to read through Genesis 1 and 2 and not realize that God is laying for us the substantial building blocks of culture. These are the, the crucial foundational truths upon which any culture is built and thrives and ultimately survives. In the West, there have been distinct troubling trends in attitude towards marriage and in attitudes towards childbearing. Uh, I, I, I think I quoted some of these statistics for you a few months ago, but the, on average, there is a decline in terms of preference for marriage and ultimately preference for childbearing in the range of some upwards of 30% increase in the last 20 years. Okay, a 30% increase in the last 20 years, people have decided that marriage is not for them, and that if they're married, that it's likely that children are not for them. Okay, I don't, I don't know how that hits you. I don't know how, what, what your response to that is, but that is, is, a, is a deeply troubling pattern that is present largely in Western cultures. There is a decline in the view of marriage, there is a decline in sexual morality, and it has disastrous consequences. If you study history, you'll find that whenever a country has come to a place of such stability and peace that they tend to drift into immorality and it leads to the disillusion and destruction of that culture. That's a pattern that you'll see throughout history. So that's one thing I wanna note as I move into this text. 
that this is a text that takes marriage and exalts it and speaks very strongly about its foundational value to culture. The other thing I want to say is that the text is direct. Okay, so that this morning I may say things depending on where you're coming from in your life experience, depending on your status and your relationships, I this morning may say things that you find uncomfortable. And I want to say this to you this morning before I start, because I didn't specifically think of any of you as I prepared this, and that's never how we go about the preparing of our, our preaching of God's word. Here's what I want you to know. We come every Sunday because we are needy people. Every one of us. Okay? We don't, as Carmelo told us years ago, we don't come because we have life together. Right? You didn't walk into a room this morning full of people who got it all together and you're the poor soul that better get your act together. Okay? We're all poor souls. Desperately in need of divine restoration and regeneration. Okay? That's the truth. So this morning, I, when I address certain topics, you may say, well, that kind of hurts because in my circumstance, it's like this right now. And that doesn't seem to comport with what the Bible is saying. And what I want you to do is to ask yourself the question, what does God want you to do to be rightly related to him today? Don't wallow in guilt and in shame and, in, and, 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 and allow that to tear you down. No, begin to ask yourself, how do I build a life context that is in line with the biblical directives of Scripture. You know, we as pastors every Sunday are commanded by God to preach the word, to be instant, in season and out of season. That is simply to say, speak God's truth when it is popular and when it is not popular. Do it when there is applause and approval and do it when there is not. Because Psalm 119 makes something very clear to us and it, it, it does it in the form of a question. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? And I'm sure if you're a parent today sitting here, you have had that concern run through your mind as you see the direction of the culture in which you live. As you see those developing patterns, there's something in you that asks this question. How can my child survive in this culture? And the psalmist gives us a very direct answer. And it is by keeping your life according to God's word. Here's the beautiful thing about scripture. What it says is practical. What it says can change your life. What it says can bring joy and a new sense of, of purpose and meaning to your life. If we are willing to submit ourselves to the truth that God is speaking. And when God's word shines like a lamp on the path of life, that we would be willing to say, God, I want to follow you. So this morning, we're going to dive into a text that at some level is controversial because the topics of sexuality and marriage tend to be controversial topics, right? Now, if you didn't know that, now you do, okay? So if you came in this morning and said, well, we don't have any issues, okay? We got a lot of issues, okay? And God's word beautifully addresses those issues for his glory and for our benefit, so I want to work our way through this text with those things being said. Allow God's word to speak to you. Allow it to illuminate the path of your life. So I'm just going to walk through the text and then I'm going to draw out some implications. So verses 18 to 20, 20 there's need and divine provision in paradise. Okay, so the Garden of Eden was a place that was called paradise. It was a place of beauty, but there was deficiency. And God addresses that deficiency 
in this text. God said in verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And these are fascinating words. The word helper and suitable are interesting. The word helper uh, is not a word that indicates weakness. It's a word that indicates a companion or military reinforcement, someone that comes alongside to strengthen and in the unity of that relationship, we're better together than we are in isolation. It's fascinating that the word helper is used in Psalm 54 to talk about God himself. So in some sense, ladies, and don't, don't take this out of context, okay? When God brought Eve to Adam, he was bringing her, him strength. He was bringing him completeness, a helper suitable to his needs. So like puzzle pieces, they fit together and knit together to create a beautiful unity that is called marriage. The word suitable leans towards ideas like similar but opposite, corresponding to. It's the picture of complement and mutual benefits. That is the design and plan of God in marriage. Not that one would rule over the other and live independent of them, but that together we could be something that we could never be on our own. That is the plan of God. He, he is providing for Adam what is lacking in his life, and, and in contrast, he's providing for Eve what is needed in her life. There's a beauty in this original design. Now, how did Adam become aware of his need? Verses 19 to 20 answer the question. It says, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man. So there's this picture of this co-regency that God made the world, but he made us rulers over the world, but under him. And he delegates to Adam responsibilities. And I'm gonna, I'll just give you this, this is free. Okay, that it's very likely that that expression of co-regency, naming the animals, and then ultimately assigning a name to his wife, is an expression of his God-given role of leadership in the context of home life. A loving, sacrificial leadership, but nonetheless, a degree of responsibility. I like this idea best. The man in the context of marriage is given the responsibility of final say. Now, I can tell you there are many times that I said to my wife, I wish you would make that decision, <laughs> okay? Because I don't like all the time having to be final say. When, it, when you're working through a long, complicated, difficult issue, at the end of the day, men, God has given us a responsibility to care for our wife and our family in the making of those kinds of decisions, okay? It doesn't mean they come up often, but when they do, it is your God-given responsibility. I think that's what's kind of bound up in this naming. When you get to the end of verse 20, it says, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the, of the sky, all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper, same words, strong compliment, was found for him. The solution to that need is that God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and it gives us this idea of this divine surgery that God does, this divine forming. He takes part of the man and forms her into the woman. I think the implications of that are rather clear, that she is like him from beside him to live with him, bearing likeness and image to meet the need 
that was exposed when he gave his names to all other living beings. It became apparent that there was a deficiency, and God meets that deficiency by making for Adam a like but opposite individual. And some of you are thinking, hey, that like but opposite helps me to understand what's been going on for years. Okay? Because we're different, right? And I am not brave enough to enumerate the, the ways in which we're different, okay? Because it's, it's complicated, right? But there's an ebb and flow in our relationships. And we kind of learn kind of that rhythm in the context of marriage and how we have different skills and strengths. And, and there's this give and take that takes place with this idea of final say when that's needed. That's the beauty that God made. So she's taken from him. She's the same thing as him. Inhabited with a different individual or personal spirit than him. But she is like him. And the verse 23 gives us the record of the first wedding in the Bible. It's conducted by God himself. The end of verse 22, it says he took her, he took the, this, this part of him and formed it into a woman. That's the same idea of that, that, of that, of that pottery that, that, that is being shaped into a beautiful image, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The Revised Standard Version probably gets this best. It, and here's the words, at last. Okay, there's this, and the picture is really one of excitement. It's what I love when I perform wedding ceremonies. Okay, I love watching the groom. Right? Because this bride has put all kinds of effort in. Right, Becky? All kinds of effort into looking amazing. Okay? And I, I, I've seen a lot of brides, okay? And I'm not nearly as interested in Becky in July as Blake is. Okay? When they got married. But I love just watching the groom try to keep his act together while he's thinking, wow. Or at last. Right? There's a, there's a beauty to that. And when Adam receives Eve, he, he has this, this, this need that has been present, has been met by a sovereign God who created him and knows him best. Folks, this is why God's design is so critical. And it is why it is so important that we defend it strongly. Lovingly, but strongly, in a committed fashion. We don't compromise on the nature of what God did. When he made man and woman and brought them together in the context of marriage. That is a divine design. And I would argue that every time humanity has messed with God's design, the results have been catastrophic. And I do fear what is happening in our culture, and particularly in regards to marriage. Because when that is lost, think about your kids. Think about growing up without strong influence in your life, with loving influence in your life. My heart breaks. I mean, I help out with our youth group, so I, you kind of get involved. And you realize that there are needs, and you just say, God, give these kids people that care. I tell the kids all the time, because I'm interested in transparency in this relationship with them. I tell them all the time, I am way too old to be working with you. 
okay? I find it exhausting. My body hurts when I go home. <laughs> and people say, well, how, how's, how's that work? How's it going? And here's what I tell people all the time. I tell people, if you love kids, they know it. And if you love them, they'll want to be with you. Okay, mom and dad? Let them know you love them. In the midst of all the crap, all the things you have to do, you must be their mom and dad. Okay? And when that connection is lost, sacrificed on the altar of personal identity, and the whole scope of possible ways in, in which that could be expressed, leaving one's home, okay? Uh, and, and you could go on and on. Marriage has a divine design. It is heterosexual by nature, and it is true and, and important for us to say that the Bible only endorses and regulates union between a man and a woman. All other forms are explicitly prohibited in Scripture. Okay? And I think it's important that we just put that on the table. The marriage that God made for the benefit of humanity and for the blessing of children was a man and a wife joined together permanently for life. Now, I want to I take some time to go through five points. They all start with the P, okay? So if you want to, James, I'm trying. Okay? This is the way this kind of fell out, okay? Because uh, me trying doesn't help. Okay, but this one just kind of came out this way. I want to ask the question to you this morning. What are the God-given purposes of marriage and also of physical intimacy? Because this text certainly goes in that direction, right? It says, the man and the woman were together. They became one flesh. They leave and cleave. They become united. They become welded, bonded, glued. It's a permanent relationship. That is the nature of what God's word describes and it is the only relationship that God endorses. So what are the God-given purposes of marriage and also of physical intimacy? I just want to walk you through these. The first purpose in this context, I think, of marriage, but also of physical intimacy at some level, is this theme of partnership. All right? When God looked at Adam and saw the need that he had, he made for him a compliment, a helper suitable, a like opposite. But the idea is that in team, we serve different functions and roles. We bring different gifts and abilities. Same is true in marriage. If you think through that with some degree of wisdom, you'll find that in the context of your home, there are things that you do well and there are things that your wife does better than you. Okay, and if you don't see that, she'll let you know that, okay? <laughs> So, so it's important to see that th this is a partnership. And in a partnership, every, the, the worst thing you can do in, in the context of a business, let's say, is to staff to your strengths. Okay, and there's always this tendency in the context of business to admire people like you and hire people like you, and it's the worst thing you could possibly do for your business. You need to find people that complement you, that correspond to you, that are like in mindset, but opposite in talents. Does that make sense? And that's, that's how you need to begin to see your marriage relationship. It is a partnership in which both of us have explicit God-given responsibilities. And it is, a, it is a partnership in which two become 
1, verse 24. Therefore, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one. All right, so this is, this is a very interesting mathematical equation. Because what is he really saying? He's saying one plus one equals one in the context of marriage. We are blended in purpose, blended in goals, blended in intention, blended in desires. We are soulmates. Life is to be shared at all levels and at the deepest levels. Can I just say this is a simple illustration? When I hear people tell me that they have separate bank accounts in their home, I don't get that. I mean, I understand why people do it. I understand what they're trying to accomplish, but at the same time, in light of this text, I don't understand that. Because we are blended together fully, purposefully, uniquely by God. And we are better in the context of that relationship than we could ever be alone. Ephesians 5, 25 to 28, calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That God has designed that together we could be something that we could never be independently. We could have children, we could raise them, we could have goals, we could have purposes for our life that glorifies and honors God. Marriage, first, is a partnership in the Bible has a deep and expressed commitment to the heterosexual nature of that relationship. It is, a, it is a binding covenant relationship, a binding contract at the deepest level emotionally between a man and a woman. That is God's desire. The second thing that we learn from this text about Marriage and physical intimacy. And by the way, let me just say this. That partnership aspect is expressed every time a a husband and wife enjoy physical intimacy. It's expressed. And it's there for a purpose. A God-given purpose to strengthen that partnership. Okay? To, To bring healing at times. To bring strength. To bring enjoyment. That is the divine design. A deep Partnership at every level. Secondly, this expression of physical intimacy in the context of marriage is for procreation. In verse 28 of chapter 1, it says God blessed them and told them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Marriage is there for the divine or the divine desi- divinely designed context in which children are to be raised. It's what's best for them by God's design. And when the Bible speaks of a man and a woman having a child, it is speaking of a biological man and a biological woman capable of physical intimacy and reproduction. That's the assumption of the text. That is the biblical norm that is expressed in this text. The blessing of children is meant by God to be enjoyed in the context of a devoted marital relationship. That is the original design. Mom and dad, I want to say this to you this morning. If God, in his wisdom, 
to children in the context of a marriage, then it is there that their primary care needs to be expressed from. We have ultimate responsibility for our children. Not the government, not schools, Christian or otherwise. The primary, fundamental responsibility for their care rests with you. And to set that aside or to jettison that is to move outside of the realm of God's design. The care for them is God-ordained. And the other thing I want to say to you this morning about this idea of procreation is, and I, I, I go through this with people in premarital counseling, children must be seen as a temporary addition to your home. Okay? They are a temporary addition. They are not meant to be permanent. In fact, they are meant to, as this text tells us, to leave their mother and father and cleave to their wife and become one. And here's the idea. When your children get married, they become what you are. An independent unit under God's authority alone. You can advise, but you cannot demand. You can help them, but you should not care for them. The design is that they become an independent unit that finds joy and uh, delight in becoming one and in getting their life going. Don't steal that joy from them, okay? The third P word is the word permanence. So verse 24 uses this very well-known expression the man is, leaves mother and father, he is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And what one flesh means in this setting is a permanent personal union at all levels. When you move into Matthew 19 and verse 5, here's what it says. What God has joined together, so the one who ultimately performs wedding ceremonies is not a pastor who says, by the authority invested in me by the state of New Jersey and as a minister of the gospel, all I can do is acknowledge what God has done, okay? Because that, that union that God creates is a miraculous event, and in that setting, we go back to that formula, one plus one equals two. That physical relationship that this text strongly speaks of has an adhesive design and quality. It is characterized by exclusivity. Intimacy is therefore not primarily a physical act, but it is an act that has deep emotional entailments that cannot be denied. Okay, to join at that level is to say something way beyond what we can even comprehend. Okay, because in that, in that physical act, in that act of physical intimacy, something is given up, is shared at a level that can only and should only be experienced in the context of deeply committed people in the context of marriage. It is a, it is a, a, a beautiful gift from God and it has deep entailments. First Corinthians seven seventeen. Paul is kind of tweaking out a very interesting discussion. And in it, he's talking about oneness in marriage, and he's talking about if you participate in infidelity with the prostitute. Here's what Paul says. If a man sleeps with a prostitute, he becomes one with her. You understand what Paul's saying? 
that in that act, you are creating some kind of bond undeniably, but we live in a culture that wants to say what? You can sleep with however many and whoever, and it will never affect you psychologically or emotionally. Folks, I want to tell you something. That is a lie from the evil one. It's a lie. Physical intimacy is an emotional commitment apparatus. Did I come up with that? No. Okay. Hopefully you would be impressed if I said I did. (laughs) I read that yesterday when I was doing some just kind of brush up with some final reading. Physical intimacy is an emotional commitment apparatus. Meaning, I cannot cross that line without in some way affecting my very being. That's why Paul says, cross the line with the prostitute. You have in some way created some kind of permanent relationship there that will never wash out of your mind. Because it is not merely a biological experience. It is deeper. It is, at some level, it is a spiritual experience. I I am wed to that person. I am bound to them. I think it's important that we understand that the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence for singles because it has such a low view of sex. This is also a quote from C.S. Lewis. But because it has such a lofty view of sexuality. Isn't that amazing? Because what do we think? When we're younger, we're kind of coming into our own. We think it's about us. And we think God in his laws is purely restrictive. Folks, I want to tell you something. This text is clear. God brought the woman to the man with the intention that they would become one flesh in physical intimacy. That they would seal the deal in that setting. And that it would have lasting consequence in their lives. God is not prudish about sexuality. But he wants to understand that, 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 that it, it, it is about permanence. And I believe this is something that becomes true. Sex loses its covenant-making power when it is continually exercised outside of the bonds of marriage. You are doing damage to yourself. And I share this with the kids in youth group. When you cross that line continually, you change who you are because it is an emotional commitment apparatus. And God did not make you to emotionally commit over and over again at such a level. That was never his design. We have been given a lie in American Western culture that it is simply a biological desire like an appetite for food with no lasting impact. And if we believe that is a lie that we need to dismantle for the blessing of our kids and of our marriages. I teach this to the kids in youth group. I tell them, keep your relationships platonic so that when they change, not if, when they change, you will not despise that person because you cross lines with them that you never should have crossed. Yeah, you ever wonder why when there's breakups it has to be so darn ugly? Okay, usually it's because we have sacrificed things we can, we can never get back. 
So God's directives, God's boundaries are not restrictive, they are protective fundamentally. And God in, in this text I think is so beautifully clear. When you act permanent outside of marriage but you are not permanent, you will end up despising that individual because something has been lost. Years ago, I used to say this to the kids in the past, years ago, intimacy without commitment breeds contempt. Intimacy without commitment breeds contempt. That when you continually act like it's permanent to get what you want and then leave, there will be contempt for you. Okay, that's just, I'm just telling you, that's the way it is. The fourth purpose of intimacy in marriage is pleasure. And I think this is unmistakable in the words of Adam when he says, at last, the idea is he found something pleasing. He found something naturally delightful when Eve was introduced to him. And he, and he, and he responds, you know what he did for all the animals? He gave them names. For Eve, what did he do? He wrote poetry. If you look in your Bible, you're going to see that this is set off in couplets. Okay, the response from Adam is a song. It's a, it's a poetic response. It's a loving response. It's full of joy and expectation and hope. That's how Adam saw Eve when she was presented to him as the one that would come beside him, live life with him, bear children with him, and enjoy this one flesh relationship with him. There was delight in his heart. If anyone says that the Christian view of sexuality is narrow and restrictive, I'm going to argue this. They just haven't read the Bible I've read. Because when you read through Proverbs 5, remember reading through Song of Solomon as an adolescent. And I was like, what? <laughs> or that book would be banned from public libraries. Okay, it's graphic, it's specific, it's instructive. And it celebrates the pleasure that God designs between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks with the strongest candor about the relationship between a husband and wife. He talks about the wife fulfilling her duties to her husband and the husband fulfilling his duties to his wife. And he is not unclear about the setting. He's not talking about one cooks breakfast and one cooks lunch. He's talking about the physical intimacy that is present in the context of marriage. That there is a need and that, that we have an obligation mutually, not demanding, but mutually in the context of marriage to enjoy that. That is God's design. It is about a mutual giving. It is about mutually meeting one another's needs, not demanding, not asserting, and then one thing, if you haven't learned it yet, you better learn it, and that is that most of the physical relationship with your wife is actually an emotional relationship. And that if you're being a jerk, forgive the strength of that word, uh, you should not expect enjoyment in that relationship in your life. Your wife needs to be loved and cared for. Okay? Uh, yeah, that's a way in which we are significantly different. 
It takes nurturing. It takes care. It takes love. It takes affection. It takes sensitivity to have that kind of a relationship as God intended for pleasure and delight. The guidelines are not meant to prevent, but to protect and to treasure. The desire itself is not sinful. So young person, I want to say this to you. If you say, well, Pastor Tim, I have all these desires. Okay, join the crowd. Okay, everybody does. Okay? To have the desire is not sin. So there's no use in beating yourself up for desiring something. Okay, but you must understand that God has created that gift for a certain context and to enrich that specific context of marriage. It's why God gave it. And to play with it outside of those boundaries will weaken its pleasure and will ultimately weaken its permanence. And the text calls for exclusiveness and fidelity in the physical relationship. I'll just give you this quick illustration because sometimes people say, give me, give me proof of that. In the book of Genesis, when Potiphar's beautiful wife seduces Joseph, okay? When he seduces, or when she seduces him, you know what his response is? How could I do this and sin against God? I want you to think about that. That to ignore biblical boundaries weakens, in some sense, my relationship with God. And, and, and Joseph says, how could I do such a wicked thing? How could I work for Potiphar and sleep with his wife? Joseph understands something. That that act is not merely a moment in time. It is a moment that changes who you are. You become one. And so that, that call for protection becomes so crucial and so vital. And that this is between a man and a woman exclusively is biologically clear. Okay, the, the I want to say this carefully, okay. Um, the biology is clear on this topic. This relationship, this pleasure, this permanence is meant to enrich a relationship between a man and a woman because that's the only way it can work. So we live in a new and changing world. I want to get practical with you just for a minute and then I'll come back to my last thought. This summer we were uh, invited to well, I was invited to two weddings. Okay, one I attended and one I couldn't go to. Having a family member that was getting married, a woman to a woman. And had to walk through the practical implications. Can I and my wife sit as witnesses to a wedding that is not a wedding? And can I, by my presence, 
affirm what is taking place. Expressing my answer took a while. Understanding the answer took moments. Okay? Because that, I'm sorry, that is not a marriage. Because what is legal is not necessarily moral. Okay? So what is allowed by the law of the land may be completely contrary to the law of God. These are people that I will spend time with, that I will engage with, that I do care about. But sometimes that's the kind of decision you're going to face today. And those decisions are never easy. They're always, at best, uncomfortable. But that's where we live. Okay, I want to address one other issue. What about the topic of dysphoria? What about this defined state of confusion or unease about who someone is? Okay? Because it's out there. To be unsure, <clears throat> to wrestle, to go through seasons of question is not sin. Okay? To walk through that kind of gauntlet, that kind of questioning, that, but what I must do is be sure that thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, and I, I, I want to I challenge you to be sure, all of us to be sure, that when people struggle and are confused, we should not affirm their confusion Instead, we should tell them the truth and affirm the divine design, which is why it's important for us to address this topic. A response of anger and deep disappointment and so on and so forth, emotionally punishing someone, is not an appropriate response. God has called us to love people, to love sinners. Jesus Christ was the friend of sinners. And when he met someone who had a, a sordid sexual past, he directed them towards biblical truth. He spoke to the distortion that was present in that life, and he directed towards truth. And he did it in the most amazing and astonishing fashion for that individual. Why are you a man talking to me, a woman? Remember John 4. She's shocked. He knew her complete story and still was compelled to love her without liking her life. There, there's a fine line, okay? God calls you to love everyone. He does not call you to affirm like everyone or everything. There are times along the way when I thought to myself, I do not like my daughters right now. Pick the name. All right, Erica's just, we're not going to pick her. Pick Becca, because she was the oldest, therefore the most difficult, okay? There were times that I did not like my daughter. I loved her. But there were times that the behavior was not appropriate. The attitude expressed was not likable. But she needed to be loved. Folks, the same thing is true in this realm. You need to be able to distinguish in your heart and discern in your heart the difference between loving someone deeply, being broken for their brokenness, and affirming their behavior, thinking that that is loving. 
Here's the bottom line. If someone is confused, the best thing you can do is tell them the truth, okay? You may or may not get that opportunity because a lot of times people in that situation are so bound up in their need for identity, so hurt, so whatever it may be, so bound up in that need to be someone that they become deaf to truth. And if you don't affirm what they're doing, then you don't love them. And I'm going to tell you something. That's not on you. That's on them. Because I love, I, there are people in my life that I love that don't think I love them. Because of something that perhaps as a pastor I had to say to them. If you said to them, does Pastor Tim love you? They would say, oh, absolutely not. He couldn't. Because he doesn't like what I'm doing. <laughs> like, do, 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 do you see? So it's difficult. I understand that. Okay? I, I talk to people in this situation and seek to love them and care for them so that they can know the truth. The social climate that we live in is producing a lot of pain, damage of innocent, deep confusion. I looked up a statistic that I saw the other day. I looked it up this morning real quick. Brown University is an Ivy League school. I think it's in Massachusetts. I'm pretty sure it's in Massachusetts. Is that correct? No, of course I'm wrong. Where is it, Connecticut? It's up north, okay? (laughs) Listen to this. Listen to this statistic, okay? Because in this world of free thinking, the more elite the schools get, the more bizarre the thinking gets, okay? 40% of students at Brown University currently identify LGBTQ, whatever else you want to say. So I'm going to tell you something. There is no way that's genetic. That's called a contagion. That's called needy people trying to find an identity. And we've been through this before. In the 60s, we had the free love thing, right? And everybody hated their parents and all authority. We're there again. The the place to find your identity happens to be, I believe, much more in this realm. That statistic from Brown and other Ivy League schools proves the point. That it cannot be genetic. In fact, if I was, I don't even know if I should say, if if I was dysphoric, okay, and came to a conclusion that I'm something else, I would be offended by the pretenders at Brown University. Does that make sense? Because I would think that their claim to that actually devalues my claim. That's, That's how bizarre it gets when you walk away from biblical truth and biblical norms. You end up writing your own rules, talking about what makes people valid and, 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 and have value and, and what is loving people, right? It gets all messed up. So we need to be very careful. We need to know that I live in a dangerous social climate and I need to be a person that speaks the truth to people. And I'm going to tell you something I would never do because I think sometimes this just needs to be said. I would never take a placard and go out on the street and tell people that God hates them. I find that offensive. Because what you ought to be doing is what Jesus did. You know what the Bible says? Jesus chose 12 disciples, rascals, and he was with them. And throughout his life, he got a reputation. You know what he was? He was called the friend of sinners. When when, when he discovered a perversion or a distortion in someone's life, he did not walk away. 
He shone the light into the darkness of their soul and sought to rescue and save. That's the heart of Christ. And there is no excuse in the context of church life for any other heart than that. I understand it's complicated. And that in certain areas in church life, it'll, it'll get, it, it becomes very, very difficult. But we must love. That is the command of Christ. And I have one other concern in relationship to this topic. Out on the street and sometimes in the context of church life, when this, con- when this topic of gender stuff comes up, people who have few moral scruples otherwise. Okay, and I just, I noticed this is a pattern developing. When people find out I'm a pastor, okay, they want me to know that they are against all of this crazy confusion out there in the world regarding gender. And I kind of back up, right? Because in a couple cases, very specifically telling me what's going on in their life that is definitely out of line with biblical truth, but when it comes to that issue, they're clear, okay? And I fear in the church that that could be the case. I fear that we could be practicing and pursuing things that dishonor God while being very clear about gender-related issues. And the hypocrisy is astonishing. Do you understand? Am I, am I clear on what I just said? Can I caution you? It is hypocritical for us to stand against gender issues that are so clear. If we are tolerating sexual sin in our own lives. If we are not guarding guarding our own eyes. If we are viewing pornography. If we are watching explicit movies. If we are careless relationally with the opposite sex while married. If we are engaged in extramarital sex. God's word is clear. And you are a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite. If I rage against one thing. And practice another in the same realm. All of God's truth matters. And while we may be ramped up about the gender issue because, well, it affects children, and it does, and we need to be clear about those things, we, we cannot be clear about that and soft and flexible on the other side and not be hypocrites who lose their audience. Okay? So we need to be clear, clear. That's why in Job... And I don't even know if you know this verse exists, but in Job 31, here's what Job says as they're accusing him and challenging him about Job. What, what, if God is doing all this stuff to you, what did you do? Here's what Job says to him, and it's fascinating. He drops this in the beginning of his speech. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze upon a woman to lust. Okay, so what, are, what, is, what is Job saying? He said, I am practicing fidelity in my relationship with my wife. So if the questions you're raising are hinting at sexual immorality, let me be clear. And that's why in Job chapter one, it says that he was a righteous man, honorable, one of the most honorable people on the planet at that time. I fear for this generation in light of a verse like that, because of what is so accessible on the phone that your children hold in their lap. 
In Ephesians 2, 5, 2, Paul says this, let there be no hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Now I want you to notice, he doesn't single out impurity sexually, he places it with other things. Because everything matters to Paul, everything matters to God. Okay, but there is this, this very clear addressing of this, of this issue. Why does Paul draw down so strong? Why is God so clear that we think he's prudish when he's really not? That's clear. Why does he draw down? He draws down because he knows how devastating this path can be for you. It can be an enslaving desire that alters your existence, your life, and all of your future, your future marriage, your future relationships. So we need to be careful. Uh, Martin Luther said this about this, this issue of the... Of, of sexual temptation specifically, he said, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. Okay, what does he mean? He means we all go through various types of temptation, most of us likely, in this realm. It, meaning it happens, but I don't have to let it settle into my heart. Does that make sense? that we need to be vigilant and, 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 and careful. So can I ask you this? What practical step do you need to take? You know, I put an app on my phone about eight months ago, and I quickly realized I don't want this on my phone. This appeals to something that is not appropriate. So can I ask you, like I just... Like, oh my gosh. Flick, 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 flick. Is there something you need to delete off your phone? So that the bird doesn't build a nest in your hair? Are there channels on your TV that shouldn't be there? Because what they portray is inappropriate and unacceptable to God, maybe not to your culture. Folks, I want you to understand something. Maybe you need to confess a lack of devotion to all of God's truth to someone. I had someone do that recently, and I said to that person a couple times, you got my full respect. Got my full respect. To come so clean and so transparent out of fear of where this can go. Folks, as I say that, I want to say this. What you need, what I need, is not moral reformation. I need Jesus. I need to love Jesus so much that there is no room for these things. Okay? So the, the solution is admitting it, being clear about it, and then begin developing your walk with God so that it is so deep and so strong that there isn't room for those things. And when that temptation comes up, it can be confronted all right, so let, let me, let, that, that's enough said. Let, let me conclude with this thought. Have you ever noticed that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding? Genesis 2 and Revelation 21. Okay, because what is God doing? God is exalting the, 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 the value of marriage. He is, he, he is expressing deep joy in it, and, and, and he's giving it to us as a gift that produces deep satisfaction and brings pleasure and brings permanence and procreation. All those things are part of this, this package that God is giving to us. 
But weddings are an interesting thing, and they're mentioned at the beginning and at the end of the Bible. There is a beauty displayed in a bride adorned. There are exhaustive, unconditional promises. Hope is elevated, and I say, as I say at most weddings that I do, when you sit at a wedding, there is something in you involuntarily that wants everything you're hearing to be true because there's something about those promises that is absolutely stunning and attractive. It's something you want to be part of. You understand what I'm saying? Because I, I watch this at weddings. I'm usually up front looking at the people. Everybody's kind of engaged and into what's going on. And, and this is just my observation. I think everybody sitting there wants it to be true. Despite their own brokenness, despite their own struggles, they're hoping that everything that's being said could be true. Even if that desire is involuntary. But in our fallenness, we know that it takes hard work. We know that, that God's intention with marriage is that marriage be proclaiming. And that's my last thought this morning. Marital love creates a hope that things can be different, that by the Holy Spirit, I can love my wife as Christ loves me. Based on Ephesians 4.32, that I can be kind and compassionate and tenderhearted as Christ has been to me. Because in Ephesians 5, when Paul draws down, he says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves you. Selflessly, sacrificially, devoted partnership for life. Care about her, love her, nurture her. We want it to be true because it taps into our greatest need, and that is a relationship with God himself. And marriage is meant to proclaim something. That the relationship portrayed in a marriage is a like but dissimilar picture of our relationship to God in which he is the faithful, perfect, loving spouse who gave everything for our rescue to bring us into a relationship. Though we were rebels, he did all of that to bring us into something that we have longed for our whole life and don't know it. Folks, do you understand why when you watch a, I'll just, I'll just pick a name, I'm, I'm not getting into all the complexity, but if you watch a Disney movie, there's, there's a story there, and the story is usually about some, some type of loving individual and some type of disaster that comes into our life, and a hero that comes and rescues, and they live happily ever after. And that story makes billions. Guess where they got it? Well, they didn't find it in the Bible but they got it by looking at humanity. Because the story of marriage is, is the story of Christ and his church. And when you get to the book of Revelation and you read verses one and two of chapter 21, it says, when I, that, then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, like what? Like a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. And it's supposed to evoke in us like that, that's what I'm longing for. I want to live with God in that kind of a way. I want to know such love and such forgiveness that it actually changes substantively who I am. So for an informed believer, a Christian that knows biblical truth at their wedding, okay, so I use Blake and Becky as my local illustration from this summer, okay? When, when you know this truth, and you get decked out for your wedding day in wedding finery, you're not playing games. 
You're not dressing up like my grandkids do. They get their box of dress-ups and they pretend. Folks, listen. We wear stuff at weddings we would never wear anywhere else. Right? Is that true? Becky hasn't worn her wedding dress to church yet. Okay? But what, what are we doing? We're, it's a special moment and there's special attire that, 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 that magnifies what is special in that moment. We're not playing games. We're not pretending. We're expressing and we're proclaiming and we're anticipating that what this marriage pictures finds its greatest fulfillment in my relationship with God himself. Folks, do you ever wonder why Matthew says, in heaven there's neither marriage nor giving of marriage? You know why? Because we are the bride of Christ. And the wedding at the beginning of the Bible anticipates an ultimate day when God's people are rescued from their sin by the sacrifice of Christ and brought into a beautiful, exclusive relationship characterized by utter loyalty and personal sacrifice for the benefit of the bride. And folks, we are the objects of God's affection. And that is why we must speak. It's why we must proclaim the biblical truth about marriage. Can I ask you this question this morning? Do you know that love? Do you know the love that you learned by seeing that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us? Do you know that? Have you gone to him and said, oh Lord, I am a sinner. You are a great savior. Bring me into this relationship that I will enjoy now, but veiled through a glass dimly. But then Paul says, Revelation 21, face to face. When you and I will enjoy what we were ultimately created for. To love God and to enjoy him forever. And in whatever form that happens to be, I'm going to be good with it. I personally think it's a new heaven and a new earth in which we will work and do everything that the book of Genesis talks about. Everything that was taken away, I believe, comes back and is made new. And we enjoy it forever in his presence. May God help us. Mom and dad, I'd give you this challenge just real quick. The best gift that you can give your kids, bar none, Bar none, is a strong relationship with your wife. It is the best gift that you can give your kids because that is the original design. And that is your children's first glimpse of a permanent relationship in which there is intimacy, there's pleasure, there's procreation, there's joy, there's permanence, stability. And your kids desperately want it. I remember when our kids were, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm right out of time. All right, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Wow, I didn't realize it was that late. I apologize. Oh, Lord, your truth is powerful and good and life-changing. For the young people in our church, God, I pray that it will be true for them. I pray that they will desire it because they will realize that it is the protection of a beautiful gift that you have for them and that you long for for them. Protect them and protect us from the pressures of the age we live in. God, glorify yourself in our lives. We pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.
still one King reigning over all, so I will not fear, for His truth remains that my God is the Ancient of Days. Not above Him, none before Him, all of time in His hands. For His throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in His name. For my God is the Ancient of Days. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, He is here with me. I am not alone. Oh, His love is sure, and He knows my name, for my God is the Ancient of Days. Not above Him, none before Him, all of time in His hands, for His throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in His name, for my God is the Ancient of Days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King, then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. None above Him, none before Him, all of time in His hands, for His throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in His name, for my God is the Ancient of Days. For my God is the Ancient of days. You pray with me. Oh, Father, ancient of days, you made us a needy people, but you also made provision for us. Lord, in marriage, in life, and through salvation, we are so thankful for what you gave us. And we give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.